I had this mindset, probably came from the CFA and from the fiduciary responsibilities that are beat into your brain as a public equities investor. But I was like, my North Star is what's in the best interest of my investors. So yeah. if I can chisel the seller, if I can chisel the broker, my investors are going to make a little bit more money. And then a, a light bulb moment went off for me, which was nobody's getting wealthy off one sub-institutional scale deal. It's a repeat game. Yeah. You need to constantly, and they're not going to play the repeat game with you if you chisel them. And so after that, I was like, hey, can I pay you a little bit more on this deal? It's yeah. a really sweet deal. And I'd love for you to bring me the next one and the next one. Welcome to the Ford Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I just got done recording with Gabe Bodie from Denver, Colorado, who does sub-institutional multifamily value-add real estate throughout the greater Denver metro. Gabe is awesome. We met on Twitter years ago, and I've learned a ton from him. Today, we talk about his time on Wall Street and just what he learned and the investing principles he's taken from Wall Street and applied to real estate. We talked about why he has decided to focus on sub-institutional real estate and the inefficiencies in that market and the way he can generate excess returns. We talked about some of the uh, the blunders and the horror stories of being a landlord, um, of which there are many. We discussed why owning real estate is not truly passive. We talk about kind of the future of how he thinks about structuring his company and really what this market is going to bring and the way he's thinking about this market. Gabe has a brilliant mind, and I thought it was just incredible how he's thought through what the next three years might look like and not only what they might look like, what he's going to do to create opportunity for himself and his company. So thanks for continuing to listen. You're going to love this episode. My good friend, Moses Kagan, who's also been on this podcast four times, that's a record, four times, is hosting the third Reconvene Unconference in late September. This is one of my favorite events of the year. It's three days out in beautiful Santa Monica, California, and the whole event is designed for real estate deal sponsors and allocators. It's a ton of fun. I've met some incredible people. Uh, I look forward always to seeing uh, old faces, but also meeting new faces. And this year, he's been generous enough to ask me to host a breakout session on industrial. And I know if you go to their website or follow their newsletter, you'll see about a lot of the other breakouts they'll have this year. There's some great ones. You all should come. Moses has been generous enough to offer $500 off to listeners of the podcast who buy a ticket. And you can either find a link in the show notes or you can go to reconvene.com forward slash the fort. That's R-E-C-O-N-V-E-N-E.com forward slash the fort for $500 off. I can't wait to see y'all there. I've been really loving this company, Better Pitch. They help you get your deck pitch perfect. Exhausted from splitting your time between graphic designing and securing funding for your next deal? Enter Better Pitch. From research to design, Better Pitch decks take the hassle out of creating your pitch deck so you can get back to building your business. Here's the cherry on top. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer to listeners of the Fort Podcast. They'll work with you until you're 100% satisfied no matter how many revisions you request. 
Ready to get the perfect pitch? If so, go to www.betterpitch.com to book a call today. Hey guys, I want to update you a little bit on Fort Capital. We are still acquiring Class B Industrial throughout Texas and the Sun Belt. We're looking to buy deals between 15 and up to 250 million. We're looking for portfolios now. We offer industry-leading incentives, which you can see on our website, that include an additional half a point commission for off-market deals. One thing we found was that our historical contract-to-close ratio is 98%. So if we're making a contract, we're getting it closed. We have a robust team to deliver an on-time smooth closing. And you can see all this at fortcapitallp.com backslash deal dash incentive. Thank you so much. Gabe, I'm very excited to have you in Fort Worth today. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Chris. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, it's been a treat getting to meet you over Twitter. And I think today's going to be a great conversation. I appreciate that. Let's start it with kind of where you grew up, where you came from, and then kind of your early career on Wall Street and kind of how that set the foundation for what you do today. Sure. So I grew up in Western Massachusetts in a little town called Amherst. My parents, who I love dearly, couldn't spell business if they were asked to. And so I was kind of a little bit of an odd child in that I got really into and interested in business and math young in my life. There was a show in the 80s called Family Ties, and <laughs> it was kind of these hippie parents. And then this kid named Alex P. Keaton, who was played by Michael J. Fox. And People used to joke that I was kind of like the Alex P. Keaton of my family. <laughs> got into business early, was pretty good at math. And remember going to the guidance counselor in my high school and saying, hey, what's the best business school? This is probably junior year of high school. And she said, have you heard of a place called Wharton? I said, no, what's Wharton? <laughs> and she said, well, that's probably the best undergrad business school. And I was like, well, that's where I want to go. And so was fortunate enough to get to go to Wharton and move from Western Mass to Philadelphia. By the way, I, I listened to Kyle Matthews yesterday on the plane, which, by the way, awesome episode. Oh, yeah. Infectious energy. I have no college athletic experience whatsoever <laughs> to, to reference. I did not play sports. You don't have 13 family members in the NFL? I do not have 13 okay. family members in the NFL. So, so went to Wharton undergrad, had a great experience, found out for the first time in my life that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was, which was very humbling and motivating, really. Was there for four years in Philadelphia and then moved to Boston, where I worked for a company called Putnam Investments focused on investment management and stock picking. And that was my sort of first career in Wall Street. And then after a year and a half, moved to New York City and worked in corporate finance consulting for two and a half years at a firm called Stern Stewart & Company. And I was there for, as I said, two and a half years prior to business school. Amazing experience. If you're young and interested in having nine years of life experience in three years, I strongly encourage living in Manhattan at some point in your life. It was an amazing experience for me. Loved it, worked my tail off, and then went to business school out in California at Stanford about 23 years ago. If you had to go a little deeper, we know in Manhattan you work long hours and you work hard. So that's part of why you would get nine years and three years. I went to Manhattan a couple uh, months ago and I had a tweet about it. I was like, this is the most insane energy I've ever <laughs> felt. Like, what is it? You hit the nail on the head. It's the energy. It's everything to excess, right? There's nothing in moderation. You, yeah. you eat too much. You go out too long. <laughs> you sleep too little. Your apartment's too small. Everyone used to say that pre-COVID, the joke was your living room is the neighborhood bar. And yeah. so instead of you, you could only afford to have a tiny little apartment. And so everyone would meet at the neighborhood bar and hang out and socialize. And 
I was doing consulting, so I'd be out on a gig Monday through Friday, and I'd be exhausted because I'd worked 80 hours that week. And you'd fly into LaGuardia on Friday night at 6.30 or 7, right over the city, and you'd see the lights, and you just had this pump of adrenaline. And the first thing you want to do is call your friends and see where everyone's at, and next thing you know, it's 2 o'clock Saturday morning. Yeah. So you just, everything to excess, and it was a wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I have a six-year-old boy, and my wife and I talk about encouraging him. He's going to make his own decisions, but encouraging him to live in New York after college. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I'm going to be back up there in a couple months. I've been there throughout my life, but never really as an adult and never for work and never for an extended period of time. And I just thought the world of it. Yeah, it was really fun. It was a good experience. When we ended our, uh, we did our call just to kind of think about some things we could talk about, but we ended that call and I thought a great place to start kind of describing that was you said there is a certain set of investment principles that I live by. Yeah. And I would imagine some of those were garnered from your time on Wall Street. Some of them you probably developed in real estate. But let's just kind of set the stage there with what are those investing principles? What matters to you and how did you develop them? Sure. So just to go back a little bit, post-business school, I moved to Denver in 2002 and took a job at Janus Capital, which is a large investment management firm. And I was a financial analyst focused on literally financial services stocks. And I was kind of fun and learned a lot and focused on the area and made great friends across Wall Street. And then obviously 2008 hit. And then the epicenter of 2008 was the financial service industry, which got absolutely destroyed. So over the course of my investing career, and I'd say I'm an investor first, and real estate happens to be the area that I apply my trade today. But over the course of my investing career, I've developed some pretty strong beliefs about how markets work. And I'm a student of the history of markets, have been for a long time. I'd say there's four or five foundational investing beliefs that I have. One is markets are made by humans and human nature is governed by fear and greed. And that's almost immutable. And this means that risk assets tend to overshoot both on the upside and the downside. And being disciplined to take advantage, and obviously this is not a unique version of my perspective. Buffett talks about this a lot, but being disciplined enough to take advantage of those overshoots is where is one of the few durable sources of outperformance, in my opinion. And okay. so letting the market get crazy and not buying is generally a good strategy. Waiting till there's fear, people use the term blood in the streets, to buy is generally a good strategy. And so I've always been of the mind that I want to be deploying capital closer to the bottom than the top. And we've built our organization to take advantage of that principle. So that's kind of one perspective is that markets are cyclical. They're governed by fear and greed. 1A is, and this is very relevant today, is don't fight the Fed. It's a losing battle. Don't do it. If you had simply listened to Powell in 2020 when they said, we're opening up the money gun and we're just going to obliterate stuff at the end of March, you would have made a fortune. And then if you listened to him in December of 21 and sold everything, you would have made a fortune. And just literally don't fight the Fed. It's a losing battle. So that's kind of two. Three for me is real estate, and this is, as time has gone on, I've begun to apply this to real estate, is real estate is a pro-cyclical business. So markets are cyclical. Real estate within markets, I believe, are even more pro-cyclical. And if for no other reason, it's because of the duration mismatch of supply and demand. Demand can change. People's jobs go away. We saw unemployment go from 4 to 10% overnight during COVID, but supply doesn't change very quickly. If the demand for iPhones goes away, Apple can cut off the production of iPhones in six months, nine months, something like that. You and I can't cut off the supply of real estate very quickly. And we can't add to the supply of real estate very quickly. You know, yeah. it takes 
two or three years to in a market that's conducive to building. You know, if you go to L.A. or New York, it takes much longer than that. It takes two or three years from idea to completion to add supply to the market. So that duration mismatch ends up making real estate more cyclical. It's kind of a pro-cyclical aspect of real estate, in my opinion. So that's sort of another belief of mine. Another one is that excess returns are inversely correlated with market efficiency. And so I'm constantly looking for market inefficiency. When I think about how to deploy my investor's capital into real estate, I'm looking for inefficient pricing. And that has what's driven me mostly to sub-institutional scale is generally the bigger you get, the more efficient the pricing gets. And so we've been able to take advantage of opportunities of inefficient pricing in sub-institutional scale real estate that I don't think exists to the same extent. Now, obviously, there are some amazing investors who make a lot more money than I do in larger scale assets. So that's not a hard and fast rule. It's just kind of been my perspective on it. Another Buffettism that I believe strongly in is, is there's no called strikes in investing. Mm. So Ted Williams, arguably the greatest hitter in the history of baseball, last guy to bat over 400 in the season. He had perfect vision. He was a left-handed hitter. He had great combination of nearsightedness and farsightedness in his right eye and his left eye such that he could see the baseball better than anybody else. And if you take the size of a baseball and put it across his strike zone from his armpits to his knees, there's 77 baseballs that would fit in there. And he had figured out what his batting average was for each of those 77 strike zones, so to speak. And he knew that if he waited for what he called the fat pitch, he would bat over 400. And if the pitch he didn't like was the low and away strike and his batting average was like 230 on the low and away strike. And so obviously if there were three 230 pitches in a row, he struck out. But as an investor, you can just sit around and wait for that 400 pitch down the middle of the plate and swing when you see the fat pitch. And so that's been a sort of definitional approach that we've taken, which is wait for the fat pitch. There's no called strikes in investing. We can have 70 230 pitches come across the plate and just pass on them and, and then wait for the 400 batting average pitch. This is an aspirational goal. It's not one that we're at yet, but it's, I believe the holy grail in real estate investing is having a differentiated lens such that you can buy assets at market clearing prices and generate market beating returns. Mm. And, you know, you look at some folks who have figured out a way, whether it's student rental pro on you know, on where he lives, I don't want to say, but on where he lives in his student market. Obviously, what you guys have done, you can buy assets. I know you, you're very picky on price, but you can buy assets and out-execute the next guys. And that's not necessarily a place that we're at, but I'm constantly searching for that holy grail of being able to buy assets at market prices, not necessarily inefficient, but efficient market prices right. to generate market-beating returns. And then I guess the last kind of belief I have, which I've started to move away from, is the saying that there's no such thing as bad buildings, just bad prices. And so I used to just go wherever I thought the best risk reward was. That led me to probably the C-class part of Denver, ended up being one of the largest landlords in the C-class part of Denver. But the return, while the financial returns were compelling, the return on headache was not sufficient to justify the deployment of resources into that market. And so ended up moving away from that. Obviously, there's office buildings that people say, oh, you know, it's worth the land minus the demo cost. And so it's not totally true that there's no such thing as bad buildings. But I do believe that price is, Buffett talks about price being his due diligence. And I do believe in that concept of trying to pay as little as possible. Basis is forever, yield is temporary. I'm with you on that one. You said a lot there, and we'll talk about how that all that relates to sub-institutional real estate in a bit. The one that you said that maybe we can go a little deeper on, don't fight the Fed. Yeah. Like if you had just listened in March of 2020, you would have killed it. And if you had listened in late 2021, 
you would have done well. Then I think about the 12 years before where I wouldn't say nobody was thinking about the Fed, but they just kind of dropped rates a little bit here and there. There wasn't like this constant conversation of like, what are they going to do next? So now we are where we are at the top and you've seen cycles and maybe not at the top of interest rates. We think, I mean, he, sure. If we're going to listen to him, he kind of <laughs> did say on the last one, this might be it. <laughs> yeah. What is the signal that, what are we listening to now that maybe he said, we're here, we're at the top, but we're going to hang here for a while. And you got to build your strategy around that and not think, oh, he's kidding us. He's going to about to start lowering them. Like maybe how are you thinking? So I'm hyper-focused on employment. Fed has a dual mandate, stable prices and full employment. And they've been fighting a single front war so far, which is kill inflation. And by the way, employment's what? I think the last rate, uh, the last report was three and a half percent. So unemployment's still very low, probably below frictional unemployment. So I'm hyper-focused on that. I think they will stand their ground until inflation is wriggling on the ground, dying unless unemployment spikes. Jamie Dimon on the most recent earnings call said, I don't know what rates are going to do. And, and I totally agree. I don't know what rates are going to do. But if you're not planning for higher for longer, I think you're doing yourself and your investors a disservice. And so we're thinking that we could be at borrowing costs for our kind of asset mid sixes and Fed funds around five for a year, maybe more. We're thinking that that could be a possibility. Yeah. In terms of, we talk a lot, and Garrett and I talked about this, like Barrett, I'm sorry, talked about this last night, which is, are we seeing stress in the market right now? And we are seeing stress, really only debt-fueled stress, like folks who took out floating rate debt in 2021 and had a two-year rate cap, and that's expiring, and now the cost of the rate cap is 20x what it was in 2021, and so they're being forced to sell. And if there's any equity there, they can recoup it. If there isn't, bummer. But we are not seeing fundamental, I'm not in my market seeing fundamental distress yet where rates and rents and vacancy is starting to hurt the underlying fundamentals. I'm in the same boat. And so that's kind of my, I abhor static single scenario forecasts because it ignores the probabilistic nature of the future. So I abhor them. But <laughs> I had a friend ask me, what do you think is going to happen? And this was sort of when the Fed started in the spring of last year. So I wrote on my board what my base case assumption was. And it's still sitting on my whiteboard in my office. And my base case assumption was sort of threefold. Inflation is going to go up. Rent rates are going to go up to try and conquer inflation. Transactions are going to fall off a cliff. Bid-ask spreads are going to widen. And prices, people won't sell unless they have to. And there will be some people who just kind of hope that rates will fall down and they get rescued. I've always said hope is not a strategy. So that's sort of version one. I think we're kind of in the middle of that right now. Step two is something between 23 and 25. Unemployment starts to go up as a function of tighter monetary and fiscal policy. Fundamentals roll over, at which point we enter a recession, and that's a little bit scary. And then sometime in kind of 24 to 26, prices start to come down, bid-ask spreads start to narrow, and transactions go up. So that could unfold that way. So far, it has unfolded that way, but it's really a single scenario forecast as opposed to a dynamic forecast that looks at all the possible outcomes in the future. But that's how I think the world's going to unfold. And you talk about unemployment going up in fundamentals. So we have a stabilized portfolio of apartments in Metro Denver. Right now, we're at 97% occupied, 100% collected every month for the last six months. And rents are up 10% year on year in our stabilized portfolio from where they were a year ago. So I'm not seeing the fundamentals, rents, occupancy change. I am seeing bid-ask spread staying very wide. And 
it's hard to get transactions done. And I've always said there's kind of two real estate economies, right? There's the underlying cash flows generated by rents minus expenses that you and I participate in. And then there's a transactional real estate economy, mortgage guys, title guys, sales brokers, and the transactional industry is, is struggling right now. While cash flows from the underlying assets remain pretty good as long as your debt's in, in decent shape. So I suspect, and Kyle kind of alluded to this, that there's going to be some tough conversations between brokers and sellers around, hey, if you really want to sell this asset, you probably got to change your price assumption here a little bit. And so anyway, that's kind of a long-winded way of answering your question. Yeah. No, I mean, on the backs of that, I think we talked about it on Kyle's, but I'll repeat it is in an up-market, off-market deals yes. are often the best deals. Yes. In a down market, kind of to what you just said, and maybe it's not the whole way through the down market, but where we are today, if a broker is in front of the deal and they're a good broker, they've already gotten the seller to realistic expectations. Those are actually, I'm not saying they're all the better deals, but they're the ones that are going to transact and look the juiciest compared to a lot of off market where you have to remind a lot of these folks, one, that either they don't want to sell or if they do is like 2021 and 2022 are long gone. hundred percent. And that'll just, like you said, that might take into my partner, Jason, and I were talking yesterday. It might be till the second half of 2024 before you really start seeing that bid ass start coming back in. I think that's totally reasonable. And I think you got to expect that to happen. And part of our philosophy, and we can go into this a little bit more about how we structure our, our investments and our LPs. Part of our philosophy around waiting for the fat pitches is never being forced to do anything. Like we don't want to be forced to buy. We don't want to be forced to sell. We don't want to be forced to refi. We want to be able to make the choices from a position of strength and not a position of weakness. And unfortunately, we're seeing some folks. I saw a lot of people coming into Denver who weren't Denver investors. They were coastal investors coming into Denver in 2020 and 2021, paying huge prices. I didn't know what their debt was at the time, but now CoStar has this tab that allows you to look at the debt and you're like, what were they doing? Like there's a deal that just hit the market and I don't want to say which one, but paid a big price in, in 2021 from an out-of-state investor, IO floating rate debt in the mm. twos when they bought it, it's readjusted to 7.17%. You know, it shows NOI from when they bought it and then they're trying to sell it. So I looked at the T3 and NOI is down over the last two years, which is hard to do. And debt coverage ratio is 0.77. And so every month they're writing a twenty or $30,000 check just to cover the debt. And so that's scary stuff. So if we just kind of went a little further, like how do you see that? We know how that could play out maybe a couple of years down the road when things have really, assuming that let's just say that case comes true, but how do you think that trades like today in summer of 2023? What are you thinking will happen there? I think it trades for whatever the market price is. We have a version of what we think it's worth, but somebody will buy it. They'll probably put market debt on it and it'll trade accordingly. And I'm not sure there's outsized returns available on that asset right now. I think you pay what it's worth. It just happens to be worth less today than it was in 2021 because rates have gone up 500 basis points. Yeah. And, and you know, people talk about Powell a lot. And I, I say, you just can't raise rates 500 basis points and not break things. And we're seeing that in the banking industry. And we're seeing that, starting to see that in real estate, like things are breaking. Yeah. And, it's a little scary. So, so to answer your question, I think it'll sell. I think it'll sell for a price. I think equity will probably take a haircut, hopefully not a hundred percent haircut and move on. We want to be aggressive when pricing is most attractive. And to your point, it might not be till the end of 24 or 25. I don't know, but we want to be aggressive at that point. And we're kind of biding our time to get to that point. But 
Now I know why Uncle Warren plays like gin and uh, <laughs> cards all day so that he can figure out a way to get through the next year of time without making a, a bonehead decision. You know, I was looking back and I think over the last four or five years, there's been very few times where we didn't have something in escrow, where we weren't buying something or selling something. And I'm kind of a deal junkie, but we didn't have anything in escrow from November till today. And we decided to focus more on looking inwards and doing some work on how to be a better company and obviously take some inspiration from what you've done here at Fort. But I hired a consultant who's an MIT process engineer, and we're taking every business process that we have, taking it out of my brain, out of my partner's brain, putting it down on a piece of paper such that we can create a sort of playbook for what it is that mm. we do. It's probably something I should have done six years ago, but I've yeah. been fighting deals every day since then. And so that's been a really fun, interesting experience for us to try and improve the company over the last uh, it's awesome. last six months. Well, it's kind of where we started the conversation. I think it's a lot of, you had said something around being able to buy at market prices, but still achieve some type of alpha through operations. And I think that's the world we're heading back into is you got to operate. 100%. For a lot of time, like we, we just discussed, you could buy something with 2% leverage, bridge debt, maybe fumble through it, still probably make a profit. And the next, I don't know if it's a decade, I don't know how many years, but if you can't manage expense, create ways to create efficiency, I think the next five, 10 years will be difficult for just about anybody. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think Kyle said it on the podcast, there could be pain and you know, you don't wish that on anybody. It does eliminate a lot of your competition. Yes. Which is overall healthy for the industry. There's been a lot of people that have, you know, real estate, you don't have to be the smartest person in the world. That's why I think I'm always fortunate to be in it, but <laughs> you're selling yourself short. Well, but seriously, you've just seen a lot of people be able to, to get in. Money was cheap. Banks were lending. I'm just buying a building. I'm going to put a little lipstick on it. Those days I think are over and I'm really excited about the next decade. I agree. I think it'll reward excellent operators, and excellent investors. And so we're trying to be there. You had talked a little bit earlier about kind of sub-institutional and obviously I would love to do bigger deals. I wish that we could buy 200 unit deals and the acquisition fees are sweet and the promote if you make any money are pretty sweet. But I have just found that they are so much more efficiently priced than kind of the 10 to 100 unit deals. One of the sort of this is something I would say to everybody is pick an investment strategy that matches your personality and your skill set. One of my enduring skill sets is I only like to play winnable games, which is kind of somewhat of an obvious statement. But, you know, you go to a casino and you look at how many people are playing, what do you call it, the <laughs> slot machines or, you know, blackjack and there's a lot of them. And that's how the casino industry makes billions of dollars. And so I go to a casino and it's not much fun, but I'll sit down at a poker table and I'll play the two five game at the win and I'll usually win a few hundred or a few thousand bucks. It's a winnable game. You go to the win and you play blackjack for 50 bucks a hand, 100 bucks a hand. You're not going to over the long term, you're not going to be a winning player, I don't think. Back in 2014-15, there was an industry called DFS, Daily Fantasy Sports that kind of took off and there are two of the top 10 players of all time are Denver natives and friends of mine. And so okay. I kind of I got on their coattails and I started researching the industry and betting with them and they were betting hundreds of thousands of dollars every weekend and I was betting hundreds of dollars every weekend, <laughs> but it was inefficient. It was an opportunity to take advantage of a winnable game. A lot of other people figured that out, started writing scripts, started coming up with solver algorithms, 
and the inefficiency was squeezed out of the game. And so I try and play winnable games. I don't want to play hard to win games. I think going back to the poker analogy, seat selection and game selection can be almost more important than how well the cards are that you turn out to be. And so I'm trying to choose a game where the odds are stacked in my favor. Yep. And that's what's led us to sub-institutional scale real estate. The question is, can you build a real business? Can you do enough deals to put food on the table? So my opportunity set, sort of what my partner and I have decided is, we wanna be able to drive to every one of our buildings in the morning, do whatever we need to do there and be home at night. So we kind of have this two and a half hour semicircle radius around Denver that we invest in. We don't tend to go east. So it's north, south, and west, basically Denver to Aspen, Fort Collins to Pueblo, and everything in between. There are 5,279 properties with 10 plus units. There's 3,513 properties between 10 and 100 units. And that's kind of our shopping list. There's 3,513 properties between 10 and 100 units. Maybe 10 to 20% of those transact in a normal year. So you're looking at 700 properties trading hands, and we're looking to buy the best risk-adjusted two to three to four of those in a given year. And I think we can do well with that. That's kind of our business model. I also am incredibly fortunate and don't ever want to ignore this fact that I'm not working to put food on the table today. I am working for my son's legacy. And that's a really important concept. There's an old Goldman Sachs saying, which is long-term greedy is so much more powerful than short-term greed. I like greed. Like I am a capitalist. I want to make money, but I think long-term greed is so much more powerful than short-term greed. And so my goal is to create as much wealth as possible for my family over the next 20, 30 years, and not necessarily this year or next year. And so that mindset has driven me to sub-institutional scale, Colorado. You, you ask kind of why Colorado? And I think that the easy answer is that's where I live. And that's yeah. when I started in real estate, you know, I just wanted to invest in my backyard. The more the real answer is it's got an amazing quality of life. It's got more days of sunshine than San Diego or LA. It's got no humidity, which I found out this morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I decided, decided to walk from uh, the hotel to Chris's office, which was a small three quarters of a mile and I, 60 degrees out. I thought it'd be a you're, good exercise. Just came still in, in <laughs> still, you know, it's pouring sweat. So that was pretty dumb, <laughs> but it's also very, very diverse economy. So no single sector makes up more than 15% of the employment base. You know, you look at what happened when tech falls off and San Francisco kind of struggles a little bit. Historically, you looked at Houston, which was very sort of oil and gas driven, or New York, which is very finance driven. Denver has a very diverse economy. I think of the top 20 U.S. cities has the least concentration in any one industry of employees. Interesting. And so that, to me, makes it an attractive backdrop. And the weather, when does the snow season, doesn't it warm up relative to other parts of Colorado pretty quickly? It does. It snows, but it, again, the lack of humidity makes 10 degrees in Denver feel like 30 degrees in Philadelphia. Yeah. And the snow melts, Obvious, obviously snow melts. But um, <laughs> where I grew up in Western Mass, and where I went to college in Philadelphia, a snowflake falls in November, and that same snowflake is on the ground in March. Yeah. It's grown because it's accumulated a lot of dirt and detritus from the, the road over the course of the winter. It falls in November in Denver, and it's melted by, falls November 10th, it's melted by November 12th. And yeah. So the weather is actually quite good in Denver. If you get nothing else from this podcast, you do know that snow melts. <laughs> deep, deep, deep insight, insight that I came up with there. All right, I want to unpack a lot. We've kind of set the stage on sub-institutional real estate, but I just wanted to ask you a question. You came from Wall Street. One of the things we talked about early on was 
you were buying, I think when we talked, you said like, you know, we bought JP Morgan stock. Like there's only so much advantage you could have in that world. And then you look at sub-institutional real estate and you could say there's alpha there, there's additional return. It's not as efficient. My question to you, having been on both sides of it, and I ask a lot of folks this, maybe not on the podcast as much, but when some people say, well, I do sub-institutional because I can get a, I'm just making a number, 25 IRR over five years. But if I was to do a big deal, I could only get a 15 IRR over five years. My challenge back to them is, but what if each equity partner in each deal is equally as tickled and happy? Somebody just wants a 15, somebody wants a 25. How do you reconcile that? So I think that's absolutely the truth. I have had LPs tell me, Gabe, stop being so picky. I think it's about developing an investment style that works for you. Yeah. And I think there absolutely is LPs that are tickled pink with 15% IRRs on $50 million deals. I have a lot of friends who do those kinds of deals and they are incredibly smart, incredibly ruthless, incredibly good executors. It's just not me. I'm looking for those fat pitches. And I reserve the right to change my mind at some point in the future. But that's a good thing about investing at, at this point right now, especially with what I think is going to happen over the next couple of years. I think we can deploy a fair amount of capital in these smaller deals and, and earn excess returns. We've kind of jumped to this spot, but just give a quick before we really start talking real estate. Why did you go from Wall Street to real estate? Great question. And this is another thing I'd say to your listeners is like. I was 37. I had worked and going back to Kyle's podcast, it was like, you know, work life balance doesn't exist in your 20s and 30s and didn't exist for me in my 20s and 30s. Y you weren't at Thirsty Thursdays? I was working my <laughs> behind off. Actually, it was growing at the time, but I was working hard and I got burnt out. It was, yeah. you know, the stress. Janice was an amazing company, had an amazing experience, still have some amazing friends. Many of my LPs are colleagues of mine from Janice. But it became, I was 37 and I got burnt out and I was not doing myself or my family any favors. I was very fortunate to have done well and have some capital. And at the same time, I was seeing the rise of algorithmic trading and high frequency trading. The efficiency in the stock market was getting even harder. So go back to what I was saying about winnable games. I don't think large cap financials is a game that you can generate a lot of alpha in. I covered JP Morgan. I was not friends, but I knew Jamie Dimon pretty well, thought very highly of him. We owned a lot of the stock. And yet I had a 45 tab model. I had every business that they had modeled out down to the balance sheet and an income statement. It traded $3 billion a day. That means there was informed $3 billion worth of buyers and $3 billion worth of sellers. And there was 42 sell site analysts that covered a lot fewer stocks than I did who were in there picking apart the publicly available data. And so the ability for that game to be winnable, large cap stocks, felt like a really hard game for me to win. So I had the fortune and courage to say, no Moss, I didn't necessarily have a plan to go into real estate. I took six to nine months off, ended up <laughs> taking some woodworking classes at my local community college. And this is sort of the origin story of Tecton. But my wife at the time, ex-wife said, get those woodworking tools out of the garage. And I was like, okay, where do I put them? And she said, I don't care, just get them out of the garage. <laughs> so I bought a single family student rental at the University of Denver, which I found in 2013. And it had a detached garage. I bought it only because it had a detached garage. And I moved my woodworking tools in there so that I could rent out the house and use the garage as my wood shop. Lo and behold, the lease came up 
was being rented for 1900 bucks a month. I was making $200 a month in cash flow. I said, hey, let's lease it. So I put out a Craigslist ad and said, let's figure out what market is. So I looked up what market was and it was like 800 bucks a bedroom or something like that, 700 bucks a bedroom. And so I was like, well, let's underprice the market so we can fill it up. So I rented it for 2,500 bucks, went like that. And now all of a sudden my cash flow went from 200 to 800 a month or something like that. And I was like, ooh, this is interesting. <laughs> and the light bulb went off and then I started buying real estate. And that was, I found that deal in 13, spent 2013, 14, 15, just buying on my own, making every mistake in the book, losing capital. If it had been a more challenging market, would have lost capital, but ended up being lots of tailwinds and then started raising outside capital in, in 2016, married my wife, my current wife in 2016. She's Greek and tecton is the Greek word for woodworker. And so my company's okay. name is tecton group because woodworking effectively got me into real estate in a sort of backwards way. One of the more impressive things you've said that I caught wind of earlier on in the conversation, you know exactly how many buildings are in your target market. Yes. I talk to a lot of people in this industry and not a lot of people know exactly how much they're after. They just think the whole world's their oyster rather than this. And then not only did you know that, you just knew, look, I need three to five of these a year, two to three of them a year. And then we just talked about you bought a spot. So maybe just a little bit on how do you source deals? Again, kind of like what you were saying, and I think this is where some of the inefficiency is in sub-institutional. You go sell a 400-unit apartment complex. And again, I'm also a proponent of this because we've had this success, but very few of them, you're catching a seller, calling them off market. That's a dime a dozen. You can't build a company around that. Let's just say it this way. We've done it maybe once or twice at the biggest level, but most of them are having a broker. But as you move further down chain, things get a little more interesting. How do you source stuff? So we're almost entirely through the brokerage industry. And this is one of the dumber things that I've ever done. And I'll tell you why. But Tom Bailey, who was the founder of Janus Capital, had a say. And brokers in equities, stocks, are very, very different than investment sales brokers in real estate. But Tom Bailey's saying for what it's worth was brokers are trying to turn your net worth into their current income. And so we had this sort of, the reason he said that was because he wanted us to focus on fundamental research of our own and not focus on somebody else's research. But we had this healthy disrespect for the brokerage community. And I took that into real estate where I thought I was smarter than everybody and I was just going to show them and your pro forma is wrong and let me show you why your pro forma is wrong, which is literally the dumbest thing you can possibly do. And so I have matured beyond those original years in, in real estate and made a lot of friends in the brokerage industry in Colorado and smaller scale brokerage is not CBRE and JLL and probably Kyle Matthews, although I've never seen Matthews in my market. It's, he's coming. Yeah, I'm sure he's coming. I'm sure he's coming. And I, you know, Kyle, give me a call if you have. By the way, if anybody in Colorado has a substitutional deal, they call come across. Call him. Give me a holler. And so I have become quite friendly with some of the smaller brokers in Denver. We've paid millions of dollars of commissions, both on the buy and sell side, and shamelessly borrowed an idea from you. We came up with a Tecton incentive program recently where we're willing to pay buy-side commissions, give co-investment opportunities for brokers, and a weekend at a Vail condo. So those are Boom. Uh, the incentive program that Tecton's come up with for attractively priced deals in Colorado. It's amazing. I mean, look, these brokers, we say the word broker, but the ones that you work with over and over, they become partners. 100%. I mean, they're as trusted as anybody in the company. And so to pay them well, to treat them on trips, to let them invest is... 
they're really become your partners. I mean, we use the word broker, but the ones that we work with the most is much a partner to me as anybody is. A hundred percent. And again, my bad. Sorry for anybody that I screwed over. I did the same thing. And I was like, I had this mindset probably came from the CFA and from the fiduciary responsibilities that are beat into your brain as a public equities investor. But I was like, my North star is what's in the best interest of my investors. So if I can chisel the seller, if I can chisel the broker, my investors are going to make a little bit more money. And then a, a light bulb moment went off for me, which was nobody's getting wealthy off one sub institutional scale deal. It's a repeat game. You yep. need to constantly, and they're not going to play the repeat game with you if you chisel them. And so after that, I was like, hey, can I pay you a little bit more on this deal? It's yeah. a really sweet deal. And I'd love for you to bring me the next one and the next one and the next one. And with technology today and where we've been, especially in a 12 to 13 year bull run, where there's been a lot of brokers that come into the industry, that's another thing that's going to happen in a downturn. They're going to exit. Of, they're going to exit. 100%. It's an eat what you kill. And 100%. the best ones will be around at the end. And you want to make sure that they remember you when the second half of 24 comes and there's opportunities. You need to be the call. That's the goal. Yeah. Kyle said on that podcast, and it just resonated with me because love brokers, but a lot of times the, you know, take their calls. Yeah. And he just said, so you want to be the guy that gets the call when there's a great deal, but you also don't want to take their calls when they, that really turned me upside down for a second. It and was he's brilliant. Right. He said, you know, 10 minutes, 12 times a year is 120 minutes for, a, you know, a million dollar deal, a million yeah. dollar profit. Right. Somewhere down the line. I thought it was brilliant. It's model. a good ROI. Yeah. Okay. What does a great deal look like for you? I know we talked about <laughs> 10 to a hundred units and maybe we could generalize a little bit, but what does a, f- without giving your total secret, what does a fat pitch even look like? Yeah. So we are, again, going back to my concept that it's hard to predict the future and the future is probabilistic and there's multiple scenarios that can unfold. We're hyper-focused on the current yield that we can generate once the deal's stabilized. We try and know the rents in our market as well as anybody. And so we, it's iterative, right? You own a bunch of real estate in one place, you know what a certain renovation quality can generate for a two bedroom, for a one bedroom, and then that feeds back into your underwriting for the next deal. So we're constantly trying to generate stabilized, unlevered yield in excess of both the market cap rate and the debt constant. And so let's just say borrowing costs are five and a quarter to five and a half for me. That constant's going to be mid to high sixes. And so I need to generate a stabilized yield in excess of that. One other thing that's translated from my days on Wall Street to my days now is there was zero goal in Wall Street to be optimistic in your modeling. You had to eat what you killed, right? There was no, you were judged on your performance. You were not judged on getting stocks into the portfolio by lying about how good the outlook looked like. I have found with LPs in real estate that they automatically just haircut your numbers. They say, you're being too optimistic. You're trying to get this deal done. I'm going to take 10% off your rents. My goal in in building a model is that 50% of the time I'm going to be too high and 50% of the time I'm going to be too low. Mm. I really want to try and estimate exactly what's going to happen. And so I've kind of had to train my LPs, hey, listen, I'm being probably a little conservative here. Don't haircut my numbers because I truly believe this is what we can achieve. And so far, so good. And so a great deal to us looks like a deal where we can stabilize to a very high return. Let's just best deal we bought in 2022. We only bought three, but we bought one value add deal in 2020. It's like a seven month escrow. One of the more challenging deals I've ever done. Workforce housing in the mountains. 
We were very conservative on the rents. We thought it was an eight unlevered yield and a three and a half percent debt world. So that's a great deal. We got in there, we renovated every unit, we did curb appeal work. We, it's a very supply constrained market and we've stabilized it to a 10. So it's a stabilized 10 unlevered yields, 20% cash on cash. We've got three and a half percent debt on it and long-term debt that we don't have to do anything with. I'd love to refi because we've created all this equity, but right, you know we haven't. And so it's really hard for me to stomach paying off three and a half percent debt with five and a half, six percent debt. And maybe it's the right thing to do, but I haven't gotten comfortable yet. And again, going back to what I said earlier about not being forced to do anything, like we're not forced to refi. If the market comes back to us, I've got two or three debt brokers saying, as soon as we get rates back in the fours, I'll give you a call. And so we're kind of waiting and we've got a few deals that we'll refi. And, but, but that's what a great deal looks like to us is misprice brought to us off market by a broker that we know and have built a relationship with tons of hair on it. Rents were half of what they should have been because it had been owned forever. The seller had a basis of 25,000 a door. We bought it for 115 a door, put in 50, 60 a door into it. And now we have an unlevered stabilized yield on cost of 10%. And we bought that in 22 when? At the beginning of 2022. January, 2022. I was gonna say three and a half, you were like right up, you were at the very beginning of 2022. We bought it in January, 2022. And like that was when, and this again goes back to my point about equities are much more efficiently priced. And so when the whole world is overpriced, like it was in late 21 and early 22, it's very hard to find a grossly mispriced equity. But we found a grossly mispriced piece of real estate because of the lack of efficiency in the real estate market. Real clarifying question. Sure. Not just about that deal, but any deal. There's no rent control in Denver or in Colorado, or is there? There is no rent control in Colorado. There was a bill that was in the legislation. The legislative session just ended this week. There was a bill that was in legislation. Right now, there's a law on the books, statewide law, that says no municipality can institute rent control. There was a bill with an attempt to repeal that statewide ban that would then allow local municipalities to institute rent control, and that bill was defeated with a democratically controlled legislature and a pretty centrist Democrat governor. But that was scary. Rent control is scary. You talk, you know, our good friend Moses has God mastered the, Moses. God bless his soul. Like <laughs> he's, he's like, you can make money in a rent controlled world, but it's going to be really hard to make money going from free market to rent control. Like everything needs to adjust. You look yeah. at all these uh, buildings in New York that were bought before 2019, they instituted these rules in 2019 and now they're selling for fractions of what they were worth pre these the vacancy control, rent control rules that were yeah. in place. There were a few scary bills as a, and to be completely frank, I don't have any answer. I don't know how you create more affordable housing in Colorado or anywhere else for that matter, but we are desperately in need of it. And it's a really thorny public policy issue. There were four or five bills that were in front of the legislature in Colorado this year. Rent control was one. There was a land use zoning, which basically said the state was going to usurp all local control over density and just force you to build high-rise towers next to mansions. And people were very offended by that. That ended up getting defeated. There's a just cause eviction, which basically says you got to renew every tenant no matter what, which is a little bit scary. That got defeated. And the one that's still alive is a right of first refusal, which basically says the state can come in and you have a building to sell. I want to buy it from you. I give you an offer. You have to notify the state and the state has two, three, four months to decide if they want to match that and buy the building and turn it into affordable housing which I think is a terrible piece of legislation. As I understand it, it's still alive, but it has not been enacted yet. 
Yeah, they can come up with every little gimmick they want to. The one that seems the most powerful is just continue to build as much damn housing as you can. 100%. Couldn't agree with you more. So Denver City, which is both a city and a county, passed a piece of legislation last year, city council did, requiring all new developments to have a certain percentage of affordable. I think it's either 10 or 15% of the units to be affordable. So there's this huge rush to submit their plans before June 30th of last year. Plan submittals have fallen off 90 plus percent. Wow. Because everybody wanted to, to get their plan in beforehand. So there's this huge pipeline of plans that are in the system. It's unclear whether or not they will actually get built. Kind of a funny story. There was a group out of LA or New York that was really interested in a site in Denver. They were talking to the seller. The seller said, I'm not selling. But they said, you know what? This affordable deal is a, a little scary. So we're going to submit a site development plan for approval to the city. So on a deal they didn't have under contract, they didn't own, and there was no chance of them owning, they submitted a plan for a 300-unit apartment building to the city just so they could have that placeholder prior to June 30th of 2022. So it's unclear to me how much of what's in the pipeline will actually get built. That one clearly is not going to get built because they don't own the land and they're not going to buy the land. But people did rush to get that into into the system. I mean, it's not a Denver thing. It's a U.S. It's a global thing, but where land costs are, construction costs, labor markets, the amount of permitting you have to do now and regulation on building. I mean, the whole system is designed to create more expensive units that take longer to get. And as I really sit here and I go, okay, and we have a congested economy. We've been booming for a long time. So we could say, yeah, if we had a nice recession, that'd probably bring things down a bit. But man, we have the amount of regulation the government continues to put in all this. And now you have social media where if you even like attempt a multifamily development, you're already like they're coming out with pitchforks like before you've even. And I'm just going, man, there's a lot of headwinds to this clean, sustainable path to development of consistent housing. And you look in multi, multi's got a lot coming out right now, but you look at like uh, single family homes. The last decade, we've built a third of what we've built the previous three decades. It's a real problem. I couldn't agree with you more. I think if you want more cheap housing, you need to let people build more, make it easier for people to build. We are primarily a value add shop. We have done ground up development. We got our- That's why you have gray hair. I joke that I'm a 185 pound athlete stuck inside a 225 (laughs) pound gray haired body. because of my development experience, which ended up working out great. We're fully leased. We got our CO in October of last year, but definitely took years off my life. And it's a hard, hard, hard business. And you buy a piece of dirt and the first thing you do is reduce the value by knocking down the buildings that are on it. And then you've got a piece of debt on it. And it was intimidating and scary. And I think at some point in the future, we'll do it again. But We actually had a co-GP opportunity for one of the best locations I've ever seen in Denver that came up a couple of weeks ago with a good friend of mine. He said, do you want to co-GP this with me? And I had to swallow hard and say, sorry, no, I just don't think the math works right now. Yeah. But I wish I could have done it because it's an absolutely killer location, a beautiful building, but it's really hard to pencil ground up right now. So let's go back into sub-institutional for a bit. So you talked about that deal that, that really kicked ass. What are some of the things you're doing to these buildings? So you talked about curb appeal. You talked about unit renos. How else do you create value in this asset class? 
So, I mean, unfortunately, there's always, not always, oftentimes operational upside, which is the best kind of upside, right? Because you don't have to, you're going to put in place professional management. We're going to put in place professional management, no matter what the existing management is. If yep. we're buying a professionally managed building, there's not going to be some uplift in NOI by putting in professional management. If you're buying a poorly managed building, like many of the ones that we buy, you get that uplift from just literally communicating with your tenants or collecting rent on time or making sure that somebody's not stealing from the company. I can tell you some horror stories about stuff that we've bought and what we've uncovered. But our major sources of value, primarily unit renovations, if we can get a greater than 10% unlevered yield on our reno dollars, meaning the rent uplift divided by the cost of the renovation, then we're going to do that all day, every day. One of the areas that we found that's been incredibly beneficial, and I haven't talked much about my partner, but we've known each other for 35 years. He was my best friend growing up. Wow. And he is a contractor by trade. And so we walk into these buildings and oftentimes there'll be a laundry room that's oversized laundry room. And one thing we found that people love to have is in-unit washer dryer. And so we'll take an older building, make sure that there's a place, a cabinet with a water wall next to it, whether it's a sink or a shower, put a stackable washer dryer, get rid of the washing machines that are in there and add a unit. So one thing we've done is optimizing square footage, whether it's making units bigger, turning a one bedroom into a two bedroom or adding a unit to a building, going through the permitting process, hiring a GC when we need to. But one thing that we've said is hey, if you're buying a 15-unit building and you can add a 16th unit and you're paying 150 a door for the first 15 units and it costs you 75000 for the 16th unit, you've just created a lot of value. So yeah. we've done that in probably a quarter of the deals we've bought where we've been able to add rentable square footage and that's huge. Those are the primary things that we do is improve the building, improve the management, try and find rentable square footage where it is. You and I talked a little bit about some inside baseball stuff, and I was racking my brain about what I can share without giving away all the playbooks. Here's a couple of things that I think your listeners might find interesting. One is when we're going to a new market that we don't have existing assets in, we will take pictures from our beautifully renovated buildings and we'll post Craigslist ads on a location that we don't currently own and we haven't ever operated in. And we'll say, let's just say we think we can get 1500 bucks. We'll put an ad out for 1700 bucks and we'll just gauge demand. And it would just have a sense for whether or not people are willing to pay 1700 much less 1500 in that market. And we know what the renovations look like because we've done four or 500 unit renovations at this point. So hopefully this doesn't create a flood of uh, <laughs> yeah, fake every, Craigslist every, ads every. and, and, and you know, <laughs> disappointed renters thinking that there's a, a new unit in their market. But that's one of the inside baseball things that we've done that's really been beneficial for us. And so those people will you'll see demand and you'll think, all right, there's a market here for 1700. Yes. Okay. And then we change our underwriting a little bit and say, now this was that deal that I talked about. We were underwriting 1500 bucks a unit and we're getting 2000 a unit. And yeah. it was because we, we had such a flood of inquiries for it. That's kind of one inside baseball thing. Another one is we, we still to this day, secret shop. It's hard for me to, you know, looking like I do to walk into a unit and pretend to be a C-class renter or a B-class renter. But We'll secret shop our competitors just to try and understand what someone's getting for units. You can do a lot of that online, whether it's apartments.com or Zillow or Craigslist, but there's no nothing that replaces actually being on site and going in and taking a look at the stuff. And so we'll secret shop that. I have actually, and hopefully my third party manager is not listening, but I have actually hired people to go secret shop our own buildings 
so that we make sure that the third party manager is doing a great job. Yeah. Obviously, if I show up, they're going to know who it is. But if I send a friend or somebody who works for me and I say, go pretend you're going to rent and see how the experience is. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the other things I wanted to talk about is 2018, we bought a 276 unit class C portfolio in one of the worst markets in Denver for $92,000 or more. Ended up selling the last of that at an average of, geez, I don't even know, 150, 160 a door. Wow. Huge returns for our investors. We bought a 276 unit portfolio at the same time that I started my own internal third party management company <laughs> and hired 10 or 15 people. So we had 16 employees, 400 units, all class C, doing our own management. And you ask me why I have gray hair. And <laughs> that certainly contributed to it. And I hired a third party management company in 2020 to take over our portfolios for us. And it's probably the best thing I ever did. Mr. Matthews Kyle talked about revenue producing activities, RPAs. Me managing me being me, not some skilled property manager like Peter, but me being me running a property management company, taking time away from raising capital and finding great deals is not a good use of time. Hiring a third party manager that would be better than me, taking everything we learned from running our own property management company and implementing a proprietary manage the manager system has allowed us to grow in ways that we wouldn't have been able to grow otherwise. So I'm incredibly grateful to our third-party manager. We've been through four or five yeah. uh, third-party managers. It's hard to find a good partner. So when you do, you take care of them. And we found a really good partner. Well, that's a top thing to talk about. Let's just finish that conversation. But I have some other questions about what you said before. But if somebody's listening to this going, how do we find a great third-party manager? Is there even a playbook for that? Like you said, that the story of we've been through three or four before we found the fifth that worked is a common story in this industry. And from what I've found, you're either like overpaying people, you have to pay too much and it doesn't, it makes the deal not work. Or you get the person that's really undercutting the market, but the service becomes like to find that nice balance. It's one of the most challenging parts of the industry is finding a great third party that you can trust and grow with. What's like your feedback to that? I couldn't agree with you more. Ex ante, it's difficult. It's almost impossible to say with certainty that this is going to work out. But here's where I would start the conversation is if you don't have good accounting, if your numbers are not immaculate and accurate and up to date, Boom. it's nearly impossible to be a good third party manager because you have nothing to manage. You manage what you measure. And so I would start the conversation with, what is your property management accounting software? What is your reporting cadence? And can I have a seat license to your property management software? So I have a seat license. I pay 75 bucks a month for it. I can see everything that happens to every one of my properties. First thing I do every morning when I get into the office is I update this tracker that I have for all of our properties occupancy, vacancy, notices to vacate, collections, future occupancy. I go through the maintenance log to see if anything's happened overnight. And so that's part of the asset management piece of it. But if I can't figure out what's going on on site by having a seat license, then they are not going to know what's going on on site. Yeah. So everything to me starts with that. You got to have accurate numbers and you got to be able to manage to those numbers. Boom. Number two is leasing. I think we are vigilant and ruthless about staying as occupied as possible. And so there's a turnover cycle, right? Somebody gives you a notice. They say, hey, I'm going to move out July 1st. Okay. You now know somebody's going to move out July 1st. 
Do you wait till July 1st to do anything? No. You walk in, you take a look, you see what the condition of the unit is. You see if you need to order anything. Is it going to be a full turn or is it going to be a make ready? What do you need to do to get ready for that day? Boom, they move out July 1st. You start pre-leasing. If it's a make ready, you've got all your materials ordered. You're ready to walk in the door. You do trash out, change the key immediately. Then you do your maintenance or renovation items. You start pre-leasing and you move in. And we break that down into the time from move out to ready to rent, then the time from ready to rent to lease, and then the time from lease to move in. And we're constantly trying to shorten all of those timelines. We've gotten to the point with our property manager where on a normal unit that's already been renovated, they can have it ready to rent within five days after somebody leaves. Wow. And then if we're pre-leasing it, doing tours, have videos up, have the, you know, they have these Matterports now, which are super cool. We've actually used virtual staging, which is super cool. You can get a pre-lease going even before somebody moves out. I think yesterday, one of our buildings showed up as notice to vacate on July 1st and pre-leased for July 7th. Wow. So like literally, I don't know what today is. Today's the 11th of May. So almost two months out because we've got this system down, we're going to reduce our vacancy and vacancy kills you. I'm sure it kills you in industrial, certainly kills you in multifamily, kills you in single family. So we're ruthlessly executing against minimizing our vacancy. And so talking to your third party manager about how do they turn units? How do they lease? How do they minimize your vacancy cost is critical. In the market right now, are a lot of your properties, are there wait lists of people like where it's a full market? You said occupancy is at virtual, or is it 97%? So when I hear what you just said about notice comes in, we're leased, you know, two months out, is that because there's wait lists already at a lot of these properties or because? So in some of them, in our value add stabilized properties, yes, without a doubt. We own a couple of core buildings where we're closer to top of market on pricing and those take a little longer to fill up. Yeah. But our value add stabilized properties where pricing is buck fifty to two bucks a foot, yeah. Boom. They're boom. gonna sell immediately. Are people staying in units longer? Is there anything you've noticed there? Or is it still pretty in that portfolio, which is probably, I don't know, a hundred and some odd units? Yes, I have noticed that. Like yeah. if you're properly priced because rents have gotten so out of control. And when you turn over a unit, somebody moves out, you bring it up to market. If somebody's gonna stay there and they're paying 1300 and markets 1500 you don't bump them from 1300 to 1500 you bump them from 1300 to 1350 right and if they were going to go someplace else they'd be paying 1500 and so they'll stay yeah and so we found if you're appropriately priced well located well managed safe clean and habitable property in a good part of metro denver you're going to do well so yeah i do think people are staying longer renovations and you said the property manager i think is doing those are y'all picking the materials and kind of the playbook for how you turn these over to where when something happens, it's not like a bunch of back and forth between you and your third party. They know it goes vacant. Tecton likes their units like this. This is what's going to bring the most rent. And they go in with flooring paint or is do you have different plans for different properties or is it pretty much the same playbook everywhere you go? So a couple things there. One, we differentiate between kind of a make ready and a full renovation. A make ready is a unit that's already been renovated. It just needs to be made ready. So you might have to tighten up the towel bar. Or you might have to you know, replace a faucet or something like that. You might have to touch up the paint. Make ready is our third party manager does. We do all the construction management in-house and my partner who's a contractor manages all of that. We have a couple of crews that work for us that we do use the same materials. We've gone straight to wholesalers for cabinetry and countertops and flooring 
and we've not gotten to the point where we bought a warehouse and we put a bunch of stuff in there, which probably would have been a smart thing to do during the COVID supply chain stuff. But we do use the same stuff over and over at a specific price point. Got it. So my partner, Chris, who's pretty amazing, manages that. At one point when we bought that 276 unit portfolio, he was overseeing the renovation of between seven and 10 units a month. And we were trying to turn them over on a monthly cadence. So we were trying to Somebody moves out May 31st, we're trying to rent it for July 1st and completely change the unit and almost put the both of us into the grave. But it was <laughs> it was pretty amazing what he was able to do during that time. It's interesting, you and Moses are very similar. His partner is a construction guy and his partner's name is Chris. I, I appreciate the compliment. I've gotten that before. I couldn't think more highly of Moses. What a guy. And so I'm flattered, but I do not put myself in the same category as Moses. <laughs> Same structure. Moses, <laughs> y'all are each your own, but we love you, Moses, if you're listening to this. <laughs> you said a second ago, when we started, we talked about return on hassle. And I think it's it, no matter what industry you're in, a spreadsheet will always look great. But yeah. what's the stuff that you have to do? And then you also said, I could tell you some horror stories. So maybe I'll just put you on the spot and say, let's talk about what you see those on Twitter often. It's like you want to be a landlord and then they'll tell you a story. What are things that might happen that would create a lot of hassle for anybody, even the experienced people listening, but maybe somebody that's like multifamily looks easy. So, you know, it's a overplayed joke at this point, but there's no such thing as passive income in, in multifamily. And we have earned our battle scars. One of my favorite sayings is from a movie called Law Abiding Citizen. And it's about this guy who goes to jail, but, but he says, lessons not learned in blood are soon forgotten. And that just resonates so much with me. And like, there's some lessons that are <laughs> tattooed onto my core um, because of being through this. So one horror story, actually probably the thing that pushed me to get out of property management was I had a maintenance guy, one of my employees go to a, a call and he had a gun pulled on him as he walked in the door and he left, the police came, they took them away, but I was literally like, this is what I'm spending my day doing, like oh. dealing with the police, comforting this guy who was an employee of mine who literally had a gun pulled on him in his face. This was obviously Class C apartment. And so that was pretty terrifying. We had a tenant for one of these 276 units cooking in lard and going to take a nap. She just happened to have the lard boil over, lard's flammable, burned her unit to the ground. And God. so get a call. Hey, we got a fire over here. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. I was like, it's a fire. It's a big deal. <laughs> so I drove over. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. Firemen showed up on time, but we had X thousands of gallons of water flowing through our building. And we were very fortunate that at the time we had forced all our tenants to take on renter's insurance. And so we didn't even have to make an insurance claim. We had the renter's insurance that the tenant was paying for pay for the renovations to that unit. Interesting. So got incredibly fortunate for that perspective, but had that burned down, which was a little scary. One time I was in bed, I had taken a sleeping pill and I was going to sleep. And my partner's wife calls me and says, I can't get in touch with Chris. And I knew he was walking this dangerous building in the afternoon. He said, I can't get in touch with Chris. So I call him, go straight to voicemail. Shit. Uh, so I get in the car after taking a sleeping pill, <laughs> which is not a good strategy, <laughs> drive out to the building and halfway there, he calls me and he's like, oh, sorry, my phone ran out of battery and I was just walking units and it was like nine o'clock at night and he was walking units to make sure that the crews that we had 
renovating the buildings were doing a good job. He was quality checking. He was doing his job, but we had so much work on our plate. Literally, we were terrified that something had happened to him. And it was not a super safe neighborhood. We had a tenant. Sorry, I could go on forever about yeah, these horror stories. We had a tenant who was doing drugs who lit a candle, lit his unit on fire, and then escaped by jumping out the window of a third-story unit <laughs> and landed on a parking lot and broke. Dude. Fortunately survived, but broke a whole bunch of bones in his body and left the unit on fire, which was awesome. Yeah, I will tell you, my respect for people that manage properties where people live is high. Because it's a different experience than I do commercial, which I'm not saying there's not problems there, but just it's business. You're showing up to work. You're usually in your best form. It's you want to make it look nice because it's your place of business. I mean, all those things. And I'm not saying people don't take care of their houses, but I feel like people's issues in life show up more at their home environment than at work. hundred percent. And so you hear stories like that all the time. And yeah, I just have a lot of respect for it. I used to own a lot of residential and I have some. I'll tell one quick one. You didn't ask, but I think it's funny. <laughs> I think Johnny's heard this one about the bees. Yeah. I bought all these duplexes down in South Fort Worth. You might even know about this. I, I tweeted about it a long time ago, but I bought these duplexes. And while we were doing our walk, we noticed that there was bees on the back porch kind of buzzing around, but it was like 10 to 12 of them. And I probably thought, you know, we'll just get a can of Raid and kill them. And when you're looking at 100 duplexes a month or whatever, you can't get a full inspection on each one and pay totally. 500 bucks. So you just walk your crew around, you kind of make your list. So we were like, yeah, we'll kill the bees, no problem. My buddy's a professional golfer at the time, and he asked me to go caddy for him in uh, Midland, Texas. Was it Midland or Abilene? Doesn't really matter. We're out on the golf course. I'm loving it. And I get a call from my contractor and he's screaming bloody murder. Oh, Jesus. And he said, boss, boss, the bees, the bees. And I'm sitting here thinking there's like 12 of them, dude. Get, get over <laughs> this. Well, it turns out there had been millions of African killer bees that had <gasps> nested in oh, the God. walls. Oh, God. And when I when you look at this wall behind me, the nest was probably as big as this entire wall. And they come in from Africa and they nestle in warm climates and they love like the insulation, but you can't really hear them. The only thing that sets them off really is lots of noise or if you kill one of them. And if you kill one of them, it puts an odor out that alerts all the bees were under attack. Oh my goodness. So the story for entertainment purposes maybe gets a little better, but it's not better for anything other than that. But okay, so they poke a hole in the wall, they're gutting the kitchen millions of these bees start pouring out of the walls. They put several people, they sting a lot of the workers and put people, it was just, I was freaking out. I thought people might die. I was young twenties, had just raised money for my first couple projects. They then flew outside and the neighbor, I said, they don't like noise. They were mowing the lawn in the backyard <sighs> and had just had a litter of puppies. Oh no. Bees fly over the fence. Oh, kill no. every puppy. Oh no. By the time I show up to the property, they had stung them so many times. They had gone from being the size of this cup, these brand new puppies. They had swollen up and oh, the no. whole thing just is dramatic. There's firefighters there and mounds of bees in the front yard. I mean like mountains of these bees. And all I'm trying to do is like renovate a unit. And it was just one of those days where you talk about there's no passive income in real estate. It was one of the craziest stories ever. That's insane. 
I would have never known. So now every time I see bees just buzzing around, I always think about that story. And I remember calling my mentor, who was also an investor, and I just said, like, the world's falling apart. I felt so bad for our people, these puppies. There's like seven of them, and they're swollen. And I mean, the whole thing kept getting worse. The neighbor said he was going to sue me. And I was like, well, they're not my bees, technically. He's like, I don't care. You're going to pay for this. <laughs> anyway, he just said, one day you'll be able to laugh about it. But I remember at the time, it was like the worst thing ever. Um, oh, that's awful. So that's my story of it renovating. It triggered a, a memory. One other thought. You know Merrill Stillwell, who's a partner of oh, mine yeah. on the deal. He has a terrifying 20-pound French bulldog <laughs> who wouldn't hurt a fly. Sweetest dog ever. And at the property that we co-owned, he was up in the mountains and he was walking the property with his dog and just walking around and all of a sudden the police show up and they come up behind him and they say, hey, put your hands up. He goes, okay, what, what happened? Somebody had called, one of our tenants had called saying, there's a stranger on my property. He was the owner with a killer pit bull. <laughs> so literally a 20 pound French bulldog and police had to come. So we always joke about Winston, the killer French bulldog. <laughs> the stories we could tell. All right. So let's just kind of bring it full circle. So we kind of know where we're at in the market. We've talked about where we think the market might be headed. We've talked about kind of the types of deals you're doing. You did have the wherewithal to sell quite a few deals, 2021, 2022. How are you positioning your company for the next three years? Like we've touched on a lot of these things and we've probably answered that question here and there. But as we look at the next three or four years, how are you positioning and how do you think about that? Great question. I was I mentioned earlier that my mindset, my investment style, my belief system is you make more money buying closer to the bottom than you do buying closer to the top. We are still closer to the top. We are not closer to the bottom. Okay. I would like to be positioned to hoover up some great deals if and when we do approach some sort of a bottom. I don't know what that'll look like. I don't know when it'll happen, but I have taken my team from 16 when we had in-house property management. It's now three. My partner, myself, and an accountant slash analyst. So part of what I want to do is hire some killers. Okay. I want a team of assassins that's ready to execute if and when the opportunities arise. By the time this podcast is announced, there will be a job posting for an asset manager, COO, whose job would be to manage and maximize the cash flow of all of our existing and future existing assets. Freeing up some time for me to spend more time on acquisitions, and I'd like to hire an acquisitions person at some point in the next couple of years. We're at a little over 200 units. We've bought or built 676 units over the last decade. We're at a little over 200 units right now. And my goal is to not, not sacrifice our underwriting standards one iota and to grow to about 1,000 units over the next five to eight years. Okay. Um, and so I need to have the team in place to execute on 150 or so units of acquisitions per year. Okay. Um, and that's the plan and that's the goal. And I am reinvesting all the fees that we earn back into the business to hire people. We're very lean right now. And so we don't worry about running out of capital, which I do worry about for some folk. The market for assets is very similar to the market for labor. Like the ability to hire a great person a year and a half ago was going to be really challenging. Yep. I think over the next couple of years, some really talented people are going to shake free from some 
real estate platforms. And if you're interested in living in Denver and working with me on building that business and getting some equity, getting some promote, give me a holler. I'd love to talk to you. So that's kind of the plan. We have sort of five verticals of what we do. We acquire, we renovate, we asset manage, we do accounting, and we have investor relations. My ideal team to execute against that business plan would be five people, one per vertical with me on top. So a team of six, and I think we can grow as big as we want with a team of six. And then the second piece of it is my LP relationships. We have something like 190 LPs in our database. I think we have 90 active LPs right now. I have always, always felt like they're true partners, not just legal partners, limited partners, but true partners in the business. And one of the things, and call me naive, I don't come from a real estate background, but I call it non-recourse equity. And I've seen this time and again over the last couple of years where people raised capital from people they didn't know, from Fundrise, from Realty Mogul, from non-recourse equity. I've seen brokered, like brokered equity relationships. And I don't think they really have their equity's best interest at heart. And I truly believe that my investors are partners of mine. And I, I think of it as kind of a trust bank. Every mediocre deal I passed on in 2021, I'd like to think was kind of a deposit into that bank. And if there's blood in the streets and there's amazing buying opportunities, I'm going to be making some withdrawals from that trust bank and saying, guys, I know it feels scary right now, but this is a generational opportunity to own this generational piece of real estate. That's my mindset is have the team in place, build the trust with your equity base and go execute when the opportunities arise. I love that. If you're listening and, and, and that role would fit you, I would highly consider taking Gabe up on that offer. That sounds like an incredible opportunity. Let's talk. I love what you said about non-recourse equity. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard that. I just made it up. <laughs> yeah, I think it's brilliant. It's what you said. It's the lack of relationship. And because of that lack of relationship and things get tough and you have to go do a capital call or you have to start talking to these people, the lack of relationship is going to put further stress on a lot of these deals. hundred percent. And people are going to just say, screw you. I'm not going right. to write that check. Come after me. We think about it the same way you do. There's a lot of people I don't know because we've grown and we have, of course, but my mom, my sister are in every deal. We, I mean, and, and not that there's, and I have a lot of good friends I have, but when I think of my mom and my sister alongside of me, no offense to everybody else, but that alone is like, okay, we are going to never let this thing sink. It creates a whole extra motivation that I don't think you can get if you have quote unquote non-recourse equity. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I have a lot of my friends and we've grown to the point where now it's friends of friends and, and things of that nature, but. I have a lot of my friends, my parents as investors, my parents with their $50,000 check or yep. probably my mom's probably one of our hardest LPs. She, <laughs> she gave, what's this capital call thing? I don't yeah. understand. Why do I need to give you money? I was like, well, the docs that you said, signed. but I couldn't agree with you more. We had a deal. We have one deal right now where we went over budget on the renovations and it was, we had penciled it to an eight. It's probably going to be a seven stabilized yield. It's actually doing great but we needed some extra capital to finish yeah. the deal. And I said to my partner in the deal, I said, listen, I'm not gonna do a capital call. I don't care what it costs. I will not do a capital call against my investors. We messed up. If I have to write the check, I'm gonna write the check to fill that hole. Ended up being $350,000 and we were able to get a second loan from our lender and ended up being not a big deal and we'll be fine. But my mindset is you put your investors first and do it repeatedly and they will begin to build trust in you. And when you come a knocking, 
when there's a lot of fear in the streets and you've yeah. got the killer deal, they're going to be stroking that check. Even if it's all cash. I mean, maybe the debt market's closed down completely and you've got to buy a deal all cash. Like they're going to be excited for that. And so that's the trust I'm trying to build. 100%. You know, you talked about you, your partner, obviously it, on our end, Jason and I, we have lots of our employees now that are in the promote. They're also putting up LP dollars. At the end of the day, I'll, I'll never forget that. You want recourse equity partners. Yes. It brings a level of focus, concentration, grit to the table that you can't have if you don't know who you're dealing with. Couldn't agree with you more. And one of my first bosses, a guy named Patrick O'Donnell at Putnam Investments in Boston, said, when you're in investment management, you have these quarterly earnings seasons, which get a little hectic because you have to update the model. And when you're 22, your job is to just update the model. And he was like, you know, if you're late up late at night trying to update the model, pretend that one of your LPs is looking over your shoulder and don't cut corners. And that's always stuck with me. That was probably 1997 that he said that to me. So that's 26 years ago. That's how I try and approach it is like, eh, no one's really watching me right now. I could go play golf. I can go home. No, I've got these LPs that are counting on me to execute and to find good deals and to not waste their money and to not take advantage of them. I mean, God, the ways that GPs take advantage of LPs is cause for losing sleep. And I just never want to do that. Yep. You know, the way I structure it, I wish I had more recurring revenue coming in the door. I'm very fortunate to not need it. But the way I structure it is that my base case promote on every deal should be multiples of what my base case fees are. Yep. And so all of my fees pay for the business, they pay for the employees, they pay for the rent, they pay for the software. My ups, my benefits all come from promote and promote is purely aligned with investors. Yep. You do some type of pref promote structure. We do pref promote structure. We do European waterfall, which, you know, is is debatable, but which basically means What's that? European waterfall means that all the equity and accrued pref gets paid back before we participate okay. in the profits. American waterfall is once the accrued pref is paid off, then you begin to participate in the profits. And so of our I think forty percent of our deals were into the promote on right now. And so that it's nice because that helps me. There's nothing better than being in the promote. Baby. It's nothing better. And it's like I'm in the promote because I did right by my investors. Right. I gave them all their pref and all their money back. We still own the deal. It's cash flowing nicely. It's a double digit unlevered yield. Let's just ride this thing out. Yep. And so, yeah, I'd love to do that with all my deals. Okay. Last kind of thing we'll just chat about. We don't have to be long winded on it or we can be. Right now, I'm assuming you've syndicated one-offs? Both. We've done funds and syndicated one-offs. So if we were to go back to how are we looking at the next three years, especially if there's a buying opportunity with a lot of stuff coming to market, how are you going to be capitalizing that? Or how do you think you'll be capitalizing it? Great question. So Moses and I have talked about this. He's kind of moved away from the fund structure. There are some structural negatives from a GP's perspective of a fund in terms of the cross promotes. I like the fund structure. I like putting a lot of heart and soul into raising capital upfront and then being able to deploy that capital when the opportunities arise. So I think we'll continue. We're, we're investing out of our second fund right now, and I think we'll raise a third fund. What it does do if you do both funds and syndications is it creates a potential conflict of interest. And so my goal with conflicts of interest, which are inevitable in this business, is to be transparent. And so what I did on the current fund is I said, every deal from one to $10 million from Fort Collins to 
Colorado Springs, that's a value-add deal that we buy over the course of the life of this fund, will go into the fund. Anything outside of this, I can invest up to 25% of the fund without permission into great deals that are outside of those parameters, whether they're too big or a different market. And then we've syndicated a couple of deals while the fund's been in place, but those deals were different. They were a ground-up development. They were a pre-TCO OZ deal. They were a joint venture down in Pueblo. And so I think if you're going to do both a fund and a syndication structure, you have to be aware of the risk or the optics of cherry picking the best deals out of the fund and into something else and just be upfront with your investors about it. So I think we'll continue to do that. We'll put value add deals that oftentimes moving quickly is an advantage into a fund structure and we'll syndicate deals that are, whether they're ground up or core or outside of our normal markets, we'll continue to syndicate those deals. We can chat about it over lunch, but you might have your next investor sitting in front of you right (laughs) now. Well, thank you. This has been unbelievably impressive. I think the world of you, I love your strategy. I know you've brought a lot of value to the Retwit community and I wish you nothing but best. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate your time and opportunity to speak to your listeners. Let's go break some bread. Let's do it. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.